Father, we, uh, as that song says, we, we wait for you. And uh, because you are God, you are creator, you are sustainer, you are all-powerful, you are all-knowing, and you are good, you are love. And so, Lord, we happily wait for you to work in us and through us, to work through situations that we may be encountering. We wait for you. We trust in you. We hope in you. Lord, I want to thank you for this opportunity for us to come together once again as a church family to uh, look at your word, to study it. And uh, Lord, I just ask that your Holy Spirit would open up our ears to hear and our hearts to listen. May you help me uh, to... uh, effectively uh, proclaim your word and uh, be coherent, understandable so that uh, we can be blessed, we can be changed. We thank you so much. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, we are going to be continuing our series that we began last week, examining the book of Philippians, which technically it's not a book, it's a letter. It's an ancient letter written by the Apostle Paul, who's a preacher, teacher, church planner, and he's writing this letter probably around 61, uh, 62 AD to a church uh, in the city of Philippi located in a region called Macedonia, which is like the northern part of Greece. And uh, 10 years prior uh, to this letter uh, to the Philippians, uh, Paul actually visited the city of Philippi. Um, We we read about that last week in Acts chapter 16. Uh, Paul, along with uh, partners uh, Silas, who was a church leader in Jerusalem, and uh, another young man from Lustra uh, named Timothy, uh, joined, and they were all trying to go out and proclaim the gospel and encourage the other churches that were already planted. And uh, Paul had a desire to go into Asia, into the different cities of Asia and proclaim the gospel there. But the Holy Spirit's like, no, I'm going to change your direction and I want you to go somewhere else. And eventually it led them to Philippi. Um, And uh, typically the way Paul worked is he would uh, uh, go into a synagogue because there there was some common ground. You know, the, 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 the Jewish people believed in the same creator God, Yahweh. They worship, uh, they, they followed the same Hebrew scriptures. And so, uh, Paul and his company would go there and they would reason with the, 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 the people in the synagogue and try to point to the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of a lot of these prophecies. Jesus is the, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, the, the king that you've been waiting for. And then afterwards, they go out into the city and they would proclaim the gospel to whoever would listen. Uh, it was a little bit different in Philippi. There doesn't seem to be a very large uh, Jewish presence. I mean, there was no synagogue. And so Paul and his company went outside the city gates to a river where some women were uh, worshiping uh, the creator God, Yahweh. And there he started talking with them. And he met a a woman by the name of Lydia from Thyatira. She was a a wealthy businesswoman who specialized in purple dyed fabrics. And uh, she responded to the gospel. She ended up putting her faith in Christ and eventually her whole household came to Christ and invited Paul to stay with them. And uh, later on, Paul and, and, and his company uh, encounter a woman 
a slave girl who is uh, demon-possessed, and uh, she's kind of just annoying. <laughs> she's annoying Paul, and Paul's like just casts out the demon, which was a, a good thing for the, the slave girl. We don't really know if she got saved or not, but uh, the demon was gone. But for her master, she, her master was really upset because her master earned residual income through that demon-possessed slave girl by having her... Uh, tell fortunes. And so because of, uh, of that, she lost, he's losing some money. He gets upset and he drags Paul and Silas before the, the authorities in the city and the authorities just assault them, beat them senseless and put them in prison. And not just any part of the prison, like the maximum security portion of prison. It's like the center of the Roman jail and uh, fasten their feet into stocks. And I talked about that. The stocks were not like, you know, you see there in the feet. A lot of the times uh, the Romans would uh, uh, construct these uh, stocks to put you in very uncomfortable positions. So your body couldn't relax. And so your body started cramping up and it was meant to just be torturous. Basically, that's what it was supposed to be. So needless to say, Paul and Silas were not sleeping instead it's midnight and what are they doing they're worshiping the lord and everybody's hearing them worship the lord and all of a sudden an earthquake happens and the jail cells burst open and the the jailer the guard is like oh no all these prisoners are leaving on my watch i better just end it now he pulls out his sword he's about to kill himself and paul says don't kill yourself we're all here still and he's like whoa he goes to them and says sirs what must i do to be saved And Paul says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Put your trust, your faith in Christ and you shall be saved. And the soldier does that. And the church is started in the city of Philippi. And God blesses that church and it grows not only numerically, but spiritually. This is a church that is maturing in their faith in Christ, that they're they're studying the scriptures. They're knowing, learning the scriptures. They've already developed a, a formal leadership of deacons and elders to oversee the church in that city. And uh, Paul's just like, this is incredible. This is in, uh, amazing, very encouraging. Ten years go by and uh, Paul has been arrested. He's been taken to Rome where he's in, he's in prison and he's awaiting a trial. And uh, in those days, uh, Roman guards were not responsible for looking after the needs of its prisoners. And so a lot of the prisoners um, had to rely on donations from family and friends. And uh, it was very shameful to be in prison. And if you knew someone who was in prison, it was, that was, still was very shameful. And so a lot of these prisoners just were completely by themselves. And while we don't know the situation in in Rome, as far as the church there, we don't know how many brothers and sisters in Christ were in Rome. All we do know is that Paul was in great need. And so he's in prison and all of a sudden he is visited by a dear friend from Philippi, Epaphroditus, who's very, very ill because he's just traveled some 630 miles or 800 miles, depending on which route he took, um, to deliver a gift, a special gift that meets all of Paul's needs. And Paul, in all of his excitement and joy, he writes this letter to show his appreciation to the Philippians and and to encourage them. And so we're here in chapter one, we're going to look at verses three through 11. And so what I want to do is I want to go ahead and read the entire passage so we can kind of get a bird's eye view of the entire thing, because this is all one thought that Paul's getting at. And then uh, we'll go back and kind of unpack it. So uh, Philippians chapter one, starting at verse three, Paul says, I thank 
my God, in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart. Since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I find it ironic that in a country that proudly proclaims the inalienable right to pursue happiness, a lot of people aren't really happy. You know, have you seen that? Not many people are happy. It's like life, that's a God-given right. Liberty, amen to that. Happiness, good luck. (laughs) You know, it's just like it doesn't... Not only many people are happy. I mean, it's, it's not to say that people aren't experiencing happy moments. I mean, that's just part of life. You get a job, you get a promotion, you get married, you buy your first house. Those are all happy moments. Uh, in fact, there was a recent uh, survey that was done and people are, however, are experiencing more happy moments uh, this year than they did last year for obvious reasons. Uh, But if you were to ask the majority of people, what kind of happiness are you actually pursuing? Probably the definition you'd hear is, I'm looking for a happiness that is soul satisfying and sustainable. That's what I'm pursuing. I'm not pursuing happy moments. That happens throughout life. What I'm looking for is soul satisfying, deep, sustainable happiness, which makes sense why some of the most popular uh, books being sold now are self-help books, right? It's like, I need you to help me help myself find happiness. And you know, all these authors are like, well, I found the key to happiness. And then there's this other author, I found the key to happiness. And I found the key to happiness. And you just all over, you know, I've, it's, it's keto diet. It's a uh, no diet. It's essential oils. It's so, you know, whatever you, you name it. And you just move from book to book and it, it's not working. One uh, British uh, journalist um, did some research here in America, and she actually wrote a book. But her findings were that Americans are obsessed with this pursuit of happiness. Americans are absolutely obsessed with the pursuit of happiness, and they're miserable because of it. Because if you think about it, if, if, if finding a, a soul-satisfying, um, sustainable happiness is your goal, you're pursuing that like mad and you're not finding that. What does that leave you? Depressed, discouraged, frustrated, angry, not happy. It's not working. And it reminds me of the book of Ecclesiastes. So uh, what I'd like you to do, go to Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament, Ecclesiastes chapter two. We'll go back to uh, Philippians in a moment. But I'd like to read a section of Ecclesiastes chapter two. Here, uh, we have a book written by King Solomon. King Solomon was the son of King David, who David and Goliath, that's the kind of David, that's, that was Solomon's daddy. And at first, Solomon started out pretty good. 
He honestly wanted to serve the Lord. He wanted to leave, lead well. And God was pretty impressed with him and asked him, say, listen, ask me anything you want and I'll give it to you. Solomon could have asked for fame. He could have asked for power. He could have asked for fortunes. Instead, what he asked for was wisdom. And so God was so happy with his request that not only did he bestow on Solomon this supernatural wisdom, but he also blessed his entire life. And again, it was pretty good, but eventually Solomon started making some compromises, some bad choices, particularly with the ladies. I mean, he married many, many wives, foreign wives, and he had many, many concubines, hundreds of women in his, in his king, in his whatever harem kingdom, whatever you call it. And those uh, women ended up turning his heart away from serving the one true God. And as a result, the last part of Solomon's um, rule was very, very sad. And so when we come to Ecclesiastes, we come to a, um, a book written by an older and much wiser King Solomon who is warning us not to make the same mistakes he did. But you see, with Solomon, he pursued happiness. He wanted to find that soul-satisfying, sustainable happiness, meaning, significance, purpose. That was his, his pursuit. But just like everyone else in the world, he pursued it all in the wrong things. So we get here in, in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Solomon says, I, starting at verse 1, I said to myself, self, come, come now. I will test you with pleasure, so enjoy yourself. Okay, there we go. What was his conclusion? And behold, it too was vanity. It was meaningless. That's the Greek, the, not the Greek, the Hebrew word hebel, which literally means vapor, mist. It's this thing that doesn't have any substance, no weight to it. It's vanity. It's futile. It's pointless. Verse two, I said of laughter, it is senseless and of pleasure. What does it accomplish? He was a very happy man. <laughs> yes, <laughs> sarcasm there. I explored with my mind how to refresh my body with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely and how to seize foolishness until I could see what good there is for the sons of mankind to do under heaven for the few years of their lives. We don't have time to really unpack what, what Solomon's getting at. Basically, he's, he's going to go on that pursuit. He's going to go on that pursuit to find happiness, to find that soul-satisfying fulfillment and, and meaning and purpose. Verse four, I enlarged my works. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself. And I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made ponds of water for myself from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. Uh, as a young kid, my dad, um, we, we were living in, a, in a Southern, Southern California in a city called El Monte, right across the street from the El Monte or El Monte. El Monte, tomato, tomato, but the airport right over there. And my dad ended up adding on this huge addition to our house. And as much as we wanted to help him, we were really small and mainly we just got into more trouble. But my dad did a lot of the work himself and it was pretty good. And my dad was really happy with the work. He's like, this is, ah, it's done. It's really good. And it, it actually um, upped the value of our home. So when we sold it, we were able to use that to go uh, move into another place. Some of you are workers with your hands. You know, you like projects, you build things, you plant gardens, you know, you, you just, and, and when you're, you, you, you know, you're really precise on what you do. And then when you're done, you're just like, ha, ah. like, oh, 
I'm, I'm really happy with this. It's, it's really happy to, to have this work. That, that was Solomon. I did all this amazing stuff. I was a carpenter, construction worker, farmer, gardener. He made irrigation systems. I don't even know how that works back then, but he did that. Verse seven, I bought male and female slaves. I had slaves and I had slaves born at my home. Wouldn't it be great to have a bunch of people to do all the work for you? Wouldn't it be great to just say, you know what? I want you to go in your car and drive 30 minutes to Bend and do all that my shopping for me. And, and it's going to take you about four hours, but you go do that for me. You, I want you to go walk the dog. You, I want you to go mow the lawn. You, I need you to work on the car. Wouldn't that be amazing? Some of you are like, oh, that's horrible. No, that's awesome. That's awesome. Solomon had that. He had all these slaves. I also possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. I also amassed for myself silver and gold and the treasures of kings and provinces. Solomon was a very wealthy man. In fact, during his reign, uh, every few years, ships would arrive and, uh, and, and be filled to the brim with gold and jewels and spices and exotic animals, all for King Solomon. So he was a very, very wealthy man. I provided... Um, I provided for myself male and female singers. Wouldn't it be great to have like top artists at your beck and call? Like, could you you're like, oh, you know, what? I really feel like singing. I really feel like singing some Beatles tunes. But instead of like turning on the radio, you just call. Yeah, can you send Paul McCartney over here? Oh, is Ringo there? Yeah, okay, send him over here too. I want to hear Yellow Submarine. That's what Solomon could do. Some of you are like, yeah, that's my dream. But that's what he had. He had all these singers. Then he continued, and the pleasures of the sons of mankind, many concubines. And we won't go into that, but you guys know what that means. So it's like Hugh Hefner on steroids there. Verse nine, then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood, stood by me. I didn't go like insane. I was still focused, pursuing happiness. All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not restrain my heart from any pleasure for my heart was pleased because of all my labor and this was my reward for all my labor. In other words, I had fun. I pursued and I enjoyed the things that I was pursuing. But, verse 11, so I considered all the activities which my hands had done and the labor which I had exerted and behold, all was vanity futility and striving or chasing after the wind and there was no benefit under the sun. See, Solomon understood there is, there is no way to experience that, that self, that soul-satisfying happiness, meaning, you know, fulfillment, purpose, meaning in the things in this world. We only find that in our relationship to God. If God is everything to us, then he allows us to enjoy things in this world the way they're properly to be enjoyed. Paul knew this well. For Paul, Jesus was everything for him. His whole world's focused around his savior king, Jesus. And as a result, he was able to experience not just happiness, he was able to experience joy. I, 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 I like joy because I think joy is a more heartier word. Um, happiness you know, is usually has to do with the circumstance or the situation. You know, you have a, uh, you purchase a dog or a gerbil or something, you're happy. You know, that, that's a happy thing. 
But joy can be experienced regardless of the situation, whether it's a good situation or a horrible situation, you can experience joy. So I like to define joy as resilient gladness. It's a resilient gladness. And Paul was able to experience that resilient gladness. And in our passage uh, this morning, um, he brings up three areas that he experienced joy. Number one, he experienced joy in his partnership with the Philippians. Number two, he experienced joy in, in the assurance that God was working in the lives of these Philippians. And finally, uh, Paul um, experienced joy in the, effect, in the affection, the love he had for these Philippians, which then ends up leading him to pray this prayer of joy. So let's go back to Philippians if you're not already there. Philippians chapter one. Give you some time to turn there. And we're going to go ahead and start back all the way back to where we were at at verse three. So here Paul is going to bring up the first why he's able to, uh, the first point, why he's able to experience joy. He's able to experience joy in his partnership with the Philippians. So verse three, I thank my God. That's the the word thank, eucharisteo. This is where we get the word eucharist, which is another word uh, to describe the Lord's Supper or communion. The word means to express gratitude. For Paul, he's saying, I continually thank God. In all my remembrance, in all my recollection, in all my memories of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. Now, in wanting to be literal to the Greek, in English, this kind of reads a bit clunky. Um, Some of you are like, yes, it sounds like Yoda. Like, you know, it's like, you must do this, yes, or whatever. It's, it's, It's wanting to be very literal to the Greek. But if you were reading this in the first century or you were hearing this uh, spoken in, in the Greek at that time, Paul's, the, the emphasis Paul's trying to make would just jump out. He, re, he, he repeats these words, the, uh, all, always, every, all. Basically what, what Paul's saying is, I think about you guys a lot. I think about you guys a lot. I have great memories. I, I remember Lydia and when we were first there and how she opened up her house for us to stay. I remember the Roman jailer when, when he was just so excited because of his newfound faith in Christ that he washed all of our wounds after being beaten and he served us this great meal. And, and, and I, I hear of, of, your, uh, of your maturing in, in Christ and oh man, I'm so thankful to God. And I, I pray often on every occasion And I don't just pray for some of you, I pray for all of you. Think how encouraging that must have been. The city of Philippi was known as a Roman colony. We talked about that. Roman uh, being, because if you lived in the Roman colony, you assumed the position of a, uh, or the status of a Roman citizen. And if you had kids, those kids automatically became Roman citizens. And as a result of that Roman citizenship, you had perks. You can buy and sell land. Uh, You didn't have to pay certain taxes. And you also had legal protection. It was a great thing. And in fact, uh, Philippi had the nickname Little Rome because they designed all their architecture to look like Rome. They wore clothing that was the type 
the style they wore in Rome. Most of the people spoke Latin. The, the money that they used were Roman coins. And while Rome was pretty impressive empire, it was completely the opposite of biblical. <laughs> and so here you have these Roman citizens who have now become citizens of the kingdom of God, and now they're experiencing some conflict. Now they're experiencing some persecution. Now they're experiencing some, some trials. And all of a sudden they're, they're receiving this letter from a man that they love dearly, a man who they respect. And he's saying, I think about you and I pray for you. Wow. When my family and I, um, actually this coming, the end of next month, October, we will have been officially here for five years. 2016 we came so yeah it's like wow how fast that has gone um but Brianna and I we grew up in Southern California that's our home that's where we you know our family and friends are and we were there for over 30 years and uh when we came here to visit I mean we we really didn't have time to really explore we've never been here before never heard of Lapine we came, we just were at the mission house here, and I think we were over at the Schneider's house, and that was about it. Oh no, in the Ebner's house. That was the extent of our knowledge of, of Lapine. We never drove to Bend. We never got to see kind of a, get a feel of the neighborhood. Um, and so when we made the decision to move up here, we were taking a big step, <laughs> a big leap of faith. And you know, for some people, they'll, they'll unfortunately teach or get the idea that if you're following God's will and, and you, you, you're walking in faith, things are going to be great. And sometimes it's not. We move from, we, we, we transition from one kind of hard situation into another because right when we moved here, you know, we don't know anybody, nobody. People behave differently over here. Things close. I didn't know that. I thought things stay open all the time. No, they close. And they close like at three o'clock in the afternoon. We're going, what? What planet did we land on? And, and, and not only that, but then also that really bad winter hit. So we didn't know really how to drive in the snow. We still don't. But it was like we were so isolated, completely alone and trying to start a life here. And I remember getting connected with a, a, a really good uh, pastor and mentor of mine, uh, Kel Trudgeon, who has uh, recent, or he, well, since then, he's, he's gone to be with the Lord. He, he passed away. Um, but I, I contacted him and I was just talking with him and just sharing kind of what's going on. It's like, yeah, it's been really, really difficult, really, really hard. And um, this is some, a guy I love, I, I, I respect. And he says, you know, Brian, I've been thinking about you and your family. I mean, a lot. And I'm praying for you. Now, if some guy from the, 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 the street just said, I'm thinking of you, I'm praying for you. I'd be like, okay, I don't even know who you are. But I knew Kel. I knew, I trusted him, I respected him. And I knew what he was saying was legit. He's thinking of us and he's praying for us. That meant the world to me. I hate, one of the things, my big pet peeve, is the, 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 the thing where people say, I'm sending good thoughts your way. Stop it. If you're doing that, stop it. That's ridiculous. 
It's like, oh, I'm sending good thoughts your way, positive thoughts your way. It's like, okay, how is that going to help me? Do I have to like purchase some, you know, receptor somehow for these positive to benefit me? It's like, that's a waste of brain activity. You know, don't do that, you know. But if you're telling me that you are coming to the creator of the universe, the God of heaven and earth, the Alpha, the Omega, the King, the Lord, the Savior, and you're coming to him on behalf of us or behalf of someone, whoa, that's way better than your positive or good thoughts. It's so much more encouraging to hear that from someone. And so Paul's saying, look, I'm thinking of you, I'm praying for you. And that prayer is with joy. Verse five, why, why, why is Paul thankful? He says it's, it's in view, verse five, in view or on the basis of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. The, the word for participation is the Greek word koinonia. And in some uh, Bibles, it's actually translated fellowship. Now, fellowship is one of those words that we've used so much that we've lost what it really means. Uh, nowadays, if people are, oh, what's the difference between fellowship and just anything else? It's, well, if you're hanging out with your uh, neighbors or your coworkers for coffee or just your family members who are, or, you know, for a birthday party and they're not Christians, that's just a visit. That's just hanging out with them, uh, you know, making some memories with them. But if you're doing that with Christians, now it's fellowship. It's like, what? What? That's not what this word means. That's not what fellowship is. This word here, part, uh, uh, koinonia, means a close association. It means partnership. Is relationship involved? Oh, absolutely. But more than that. Outside the New Testament, this word is used to describe uh, the relationship between two individuals who go in on a business together. They're both invested. They're both on the same, have the same goals. They're both working together. That is fellowship. And Paul is like, I have joy. I thank God because you and I, we are in fellowship we are in partnership. We have this close association. We love each other. We serve each other. We pray for each other. We live our lives together and we partner for the cause of Christ. We partner for the sake of the gospel. That is fellowship. I, th- I think the church here in America needs to re-embrace the true definition of what fellowship is. Because yes, does it involve sharing memories and laughing and building relationships? Absolutely. But it's more than that. Earlier on in, in, uh, in this uh, verse, uh, in this chapter, when Paul is sending his greeting in chapter one, he refers to the Philippians as saints. And all, we, we talked about that last week, that all Christians, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're a saint. And the word saint means a holy one, someone who is dedicated, set apart. And that harkens back to the the Old Testament language with the the people of Israel. The people of Israel were supposed to be holy people. They were supposed to be set apart. They were supposed to look and behave differently from the rest of the world. The same with us. If we are followers of Christ, we are to look and behave differently than the rest of this world. And so while the rest of the world is just simply hanging out making memories, we're doing that, but much more. 
With brothers and sisters in Christ, we are partnering together. We are experiencing koinonia, true fellowship. Now, some people say, well, it's just, you know, it's just not my personality. I'm, I'm really shy. I really don't, you know, it's a lot of work for me to put myself out there and really try to make a, a connections with people. In Proverbs 18, 1, uh, the, uh, I believe it's Solomon is saying, you know, whoever isolates himself goes against all sound judgment. He, he fights against sound judgment. If you willfully isolate yourself, basically, it's not going to go good for you. You see, when God created, uh, um, uh, it's, it's, if, if those who want to know, it's, it's Proverbs 18, verse 1. If you want to put that there, that's a really great verse. Proverbs 18, 1. But when God created the, uh, the world, you know, he creates the, the, the stars, he's good. And he creates something else, he says, good, 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 good. When he comes to man, Adam, he says, it is not good for man to be alone. It's not good for us to be alone. Here in Lapine, I've noticed, that was one of the big things, the culture shocks really, is um, a, a lot of people move here to be alone, to isolate themselves from the world, from anybody. And that's not good, especially if you're a follower of Christ. Because we're not to, we're not to just do, live our, out our faith in isolation. We are to be in fellowship with one another, be in partnership with one another. So I encourage you to, to do that, to experience that, that, uh, that fellowship. So Paul says, I thank God I experienced joy in our, in our, in our, part, our participation and our fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Now he's going to move on to the second reason he has, he's able to experience joy. Joy in the assurance that God is still at work in the, 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 the people of, of Philippi. He says in verse 6, For I am confident of this very thing. I am certain fully persuaded. And it's, it's in those of you who kind of nerded out on this, it's in the perfect tense. Perfect tense means that in the past, he was persuaded in the past and nothing has changed. He's still fully convinced of this very thing that he who began, who started a good work in you will perfect it, will bring it to a whole, will realize it bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. In the Old Testament, they had a phrase called Yom, Yom, uh, Yom Yahweh, which was the day of the Lord. It was basically this, this moment. It was going to be the climactic moment of history where God would come and bring righteousness and justice, remove all the wickedness. He would be our God. We would be his people be great. In the New Testament, the the day of the Lord is associated with the coming of Christ. And so here Paul is saying, bringing up that idea, the day of the Lord, the, the day of Christ Jesus. Basically, all of life is heading towards this day, this day of the Lord, the day when Christ comes back. And until that time, until that happens, God is still at work. That's what Paul's saying. I'm fully convinced that God is still at 
work. Now, some people will, uh, when, it, when, when he's talking about the good work, uh, people will associate this with uh, salvation. And I, I, won't, I wouldn't knock that because the Bible is really clear about the assurance of our salvation. Um, if you are truly a follower of Jesus, you've put, placed your faith and trust in Jesus, you're following him, uh, there's a promise he's given never to leave us or forsake us. He's never going to let us go. Further, we have been given the Holy Spirit. Paul is going to later talk about in the, in the, uh, in the letter to uh, the Philippians that this Holy Spirit works in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So not only will God never let us go, but the Holy Spirit will never give us the desire to walk away. That's the assurance of our salvation. That's the hope of our salvation. That's amazing. It's solid. Here, I, I believe, um, grammatically, it's connected with the entire uh, section above, particularly verse five, where he says, um, I'm thankful to God. Why? Because of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. In the Greek, there's a definite article right before now. So literally, it could be read the first day until the now. He's being very specific about what that now means. And here, I believe it's referring to, because later on, it kind of confirms it in the letter, referring to the generosity that these Philippians have bestowed on Paul to provide for his needs. It's like, this is a good work. You are very generous. The word uh, good is agathos. It means profitable, serviceable, beneficial. So what Paul's saying is you are very, very generous. This is a good work that God has started and I am confident that he's just gonna work in you and through you, continue, continue, all the way until either you go to Jesus or Jesus comes back. That must have been encouraging. Again, because if, if you're experiencing, uh, you know, in the first century, communication was not as instantaneous as it is now. You could send an email now, even a letter doesn't take nearly as long as it did back then in the first century. And, and so you're, you're kind of isolated. You know, you're, you don't know what's going on with the other churches and you're experiencing all these, these trials, all this persecution. You can feel kind of alone. And here Paul is saying, I'm confident God's still with you and he's working in you and through you. And he's gonna keep on doing that. It's like, whoa, that's really encouraging. For us here at Cascade Bible Church, we've been with existence for over 30 years. God started a good work here. And, and, and whether or not this building continues to exist in 50, 100 years, or even the organization Cascade Bible Church continues to exist, the people, us, as the true church, God's gonna continue to work in our lives, in our lives and through our lives. And that's comforting. That's comforting all the way until the day of Christ Jesus. So Paul has, is able to experience joy in his partnership with his fellowship with the, the people in Philippi. He's able to uh, experience joy in the assurance that God is in control. God is still at work in the lives of the Philippians. And finally, he is going to experience joy in his love and affection for them. Verse seven, for it is only right, it is only proper for me to feel this way about you, to have this opinion of you because I have you in my heart. I possess you in my heart. Just shows you, it's almost like a, you, 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 you possess like this really precious treasure. That's kind of the language here. You're a treasure to me. 
he says, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense of and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. Now, the words defense and confirmation are legal terms, which makes sense because Paul is awaiting his trial and he's going to have to make a defense, which is basically a verbal argument to prove his innocence. And the word confirmation is basically to establish a proof of something, establish the proof in in Paul's case, proof that he's not in the wrong, that he's okay to do what he's doing, that he is justified in doing what he's doing. He says, you, you Philippians are partakers of grace with me. This is a, a, another form of koinonia. It's, it's the idea of being a co-participant, a sharer in something. He's basically saying, listen, the, the stuff, the things that I'm enduring right now, I know you guys are enduring too. Maybe a little bit different, but we're all suffering for the cause of Christ, for the gospel. And probably this, for encouragement for Paul, he wasn't alone in it. Others were too. And so there was like that camaraderie there. Verse eight, for God is my witness, how I long, how I continually desire for you all, not just some of you, all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. The word there for affection is crazy words, splachnon, clean on right there. Splachnon. Um, it's on German. Eis, zwei, drei, vier. No, um, anyways. Um, Splachnon! Uh, have you ever seen that video where it's like, sorry, this is completely off topic. That video where it's like how different words sound. It's like, oh, this is how butterfly sounds in Spanish. And this is, or how flower sounds like in France. Flu. This is how it sounds in German. Splachnon! But anyways. Sorry if anyone's German watching this. We love you. You are great. Love those sausages. Um, okay, here we go. Uh, okay, affection. That word, splachnon, uh, literally means your guts, your bowels. In the first century, the idea of, of deep emotion came from your guts. So what Paul's saying is, you guys... I love you with the kind of gut kind of love that Christ has for you. How did Christ demonstrate this deep in his guts love for us? Well, he lived the life you and I will never be able to live. He lived a perfect life and he was treated unfairly, unjustly beaten, scourged, shamed, crucified. And he took on the punishment that we rightfully deserve because of our sin. And he rose again to offer us this free gift of salvation. That's how in his guts kind of love that he, he has for us. And Paul's saying that same kind of love I have for you. Now I can with a clear conscience say, I have this kind of affection for you know, my sons right there, my wife, my other kids. I have that deep in my guts kind of affection for them. But I... I'm going to be honest, it gives me pause. Do I have that same love for you guys? Because I do love you guys. I do. And I guess, and I'm pretty sure, at least hopefully you guys, we love you too. We love each other. But is it the kind of love that Paul has? That deep in your guts kind of affection for one another? Because you see that kind of love, 
doesn't just settle for lip service. It's not just, oh, I love you. It's let me show you how much I love you. That's the kind of love. And Paul demonstrated that again and again with these people. And they in turn displayed that same affection to him in in providing for him. In fact, out of all the churches in Macedonia, it was Philippi that provided for a lot of the needs of, of Paul financially. And, and Philippi, was the church there was really not that rich of a church, but yet they were very, very generous. So he experiences joy in his fellowship, his partnership with the Philippians. He experiences joy in the assurance that God is still at work in the Philippians' lives. And he's, he experiences joy in his, his love, his affection for the Philippians' And this leads him into that prayer of joy. Verse nine, and this I pray, this is my prayer, that your, your love, and that's the Greek word agape. Again, this is not just about fluffy feelings, warm, fuzzy feelings. This is, this is an action. This is what we like to, here in Cascade Bible Church, we define it as a sacrificial devotion. I think that's a great definition of agape love. He says, I pray that your love, your agape love, may abound still more and more. I pray that it just overflows more and more. You already have have, have demonstrated your love, church in Philippi, but I pray that it just gets even bigger and bigger. But he also prays that that love is guided and directed in real knowledge and all discernment. Because when love is just let loosey-goosey to run amok, sometimes it could lead to making some poor choices. And so what Paul's saying is, I pray that this love will be guided and directed in the real knowledge and all discernment. The Greek word there for real knowledge is epigenosis. It doesn't just mean a a clear and distinct understanding of head head knowledge. It's this personal, well-acquainted knowledge. It's a kind of knowledge that we believe, we trust in, we live by. And all discernment, the, uh, the, the word there for discernment is to, to, to understand, to have insight. Biblically speaking, the, uh, um, this, this full knowledge, this real knowledge and, and discernment and insight comes from God's word. As we actively, you know, it, it doesn't just come uh, like inst- instantaneous. It's not like we just stick our spiritual antenna up and then boom there we go. We've now received and downloaded real knowledge and discernment. No, we have to actively engage and participate in the study of God's word. And that's where we will experience, we will have real knowledge, this full personal experiential knowledge and discernment, insight. And when we have that insight, Paul continues in verse 10, we will be able to approve the things that are excellent. Approve means to test or to scrutinize. The things that are excellent is the idea of, of balancing it, weighing something. So basically, it's this, this knowledge and this discernment helps us determine what is right, what is wrong, what is false, what is true, what is good, and what is better. That's what Paul's looking for. He's praying for that this love will be guided by the knowledge and and insight of God's word, so we'll be able to make good choices. What's the purpose? Continuing on, verse 10, in order or so that they can live a life that is 
they, they, can, they can live a life that is sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. The word there for sincere um, could mean judged to be judged by sunlight. It's the idea that, you know, the sunlight exposes what's there. And it reminds me of Proverbs 28.1 that says, uh, the wicked flee when no one is pursuing. Why are they running away? Because they've got something to hide, right? The wicked flee when no one is pursuing, but the righteous are as bold as lion. Why? Because they got nothing to hide. That's what it means to be sincere. You have no hidden motives, no hidden agendas. And the word blameless is this idea of not causing someone to, to stumble. See, for Paul, Paul, doesn't want, Paul is very aware that the outside world is watching us. And they're looking, okay, you say you follow this guy named Jesus. I'm watching you. I'm gonna see if it, you really live up to it. And so Paul's saying, I'm praying that, this, that your love, the love that you already have, that you've already de- demonstrated would overflow more and more. And that love would be guided by the knowledge and discernment of God's word so that you can make good decisions and live a life that is sincere and not a stumbling block for anyone else until the day of Christ. Verse 11, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, grammatically, Paul is not saying one day you will be filled with the fruit of righteousness. He's using once again, the perfect tense, meaning from the moment you got saved, you were already filled with the fruit of righteousness. And that word filled means literally to be crammed to be fully supplied with the fruit of righteousness. That happened. And guess what? Nothing has changed, church in Philippi. You are still filled, fully supplied with the fruit of righteousness. Well, what's the fruit of righteousness? Those are the, 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 the actions, the behaviors, the evidence of your relationship, your connection with Jesus. Jesus said to his disciples, I am the branch, you are the, or I'm the vine, you are the branch. Got mixed up. I am the vine, you are the branch. If you, anyone who abides in me will bear much fruit. If you don't abide in me, you won't bear any fruit. Jesus is the source. We, we do not generate this righteousness on our own. As much as the world would like to tell, teach that. Oh, you, you, everyone's naturally good. You just need to find ways to bring it out. No, no. That righteousness that fruit of that righteousness doesn't generate from us. The source is from Jesus Christ. He's the one who displays it in our lives, just grows it and displays it in our lives. And ultimately he brings up, it's, it's all for his glory. The glory, which means splendor, weightiness, importance, and praise of God. This is a great prayer right here. And, and it's, 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 it's one of those prayers that, you know, you know, Paul doesn't just want good things for, for the church in Philippi. He wants the best. He wants the very best. God wants the very, very best for us as well. And what does that look like? That our love for one another, not just lip service, that our love would overflow more and more, that we would be guided and directed by God's word really taking the time to study his word, follow his word so that we can make good decisions, beneficial decisions. 
to live a life that is sincere and blameless before him and displaying the fruits of righteousness because of our relationship with Christ. So review here. Paul is able to experience joy because number one, his partnership with the church in Philippi, his fellowship with them. Number two, he's able to experience joy because of the assurance that God is still at work in the church at Philippi. And three, Paul is able to experience joy because of his affection, his love for the people in Philippi. And his prayer is filled with joy. It's simply that they would grow in their love, they grow in their knowledge of God's word, produce some fruit. And that's really the prayer for us all, that that would be the case. You can experience joy. Everyone in this room can experience joy. And I know that kind of expression gets tainted because of a lot of so-called preachers on television saying, you can experience joy today by sowing your seed of 2595. You know, call now. You know, um, that's just unbiblical just to let you know. Don't ever give people that money for that. We can experience the kind of happiness, the kind of joy that people are in the world are trying to pursue. Number one, in our relationship with Christ. It's got to start there. He is the source. So if you've never made a decision to follow Christ, I don't know what's stopping you. If you have any questions, we'd love to talk with you. I would love to talk with you. Ask one of the, 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 the deacons. We'd love to talk with you, answer any questions you have. But that's the source. And he gives us the ability to experience joy in other things. For us, we can, like Paul, we can experience joy the fact that we are not just hanging out, not just visiting and making memories. We are in partnership. We are in fellowship with one another. We can have joy in the fact that God, who began a good work in us, is still doing it and will continue doing that good work. We can have joy in the fact that we love each other. I mean, how can you not have joy when you have affection for someone? I mean, that's like the opposite, right? I have affection for you, love for you, joy. Remember, joy is that resilient gladness. The world needs it. Um, I can keep going on, but I'm going to stop right there. Tune in next week, same time, same channel, as we'll continue going through this book of Philippians. Let's go ahead and pray.